Welcome to this sermon from Silver Lake Baptist Church. Our mission is to celebrate the greatness of God with all we are for the joy, hope, and renewal of our community. We are so glad you have chosen to listen to our message. We pray you will be blessed by your time with us today. It's one of those, one of those mornings, but I've been looking forward to it. Choices. I'm sure that we take this for granted. We have so many, many choices in this country. We live in a time and a culture where our choices are nearly limitless, even for very simple things. Here's an example. Since the pandemic restrictions last year, I've been doing most of the grocery shopping for our house. Needless to say, I shop like a guy. Get in, get the food, get out. But there are so many choices. First, what store to go to? Within 10 miles of my house, there are 18 Safeways, 16 QFCs, four Fred Meyers, three grocery outlets, not to mention PCC, Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, Winco, Costco, and many other specialty and small grocery stores. (laughs) Okay, okay, so I choose a grocery store. Then one of the things on my list is cucumbers. But there are so many choices. I got some slides. There we go. Regular, there's regular cucumbers. Another slide. There's English cucumbers. A next, next slide, organic cucumbers. There's organic, next slide, organic English cucumbers. And don't f- forget preserved cucumbers. Next one, we call them pickles. This kind of overwhelmed me. (laughs) And it's not even a big store. But there are still more choices. One more. This made me laugh. Okay. Just whatever you need. There's that's cucumbers. Um, So I think there's such a thing as choice paralysis when having too many choices. Right? When Kathy and I had been married only a few months, we decided to buy a house. Houses were a lot cheaper back then. One of the things we got to do was to choose the vinyl floor covering for the kitchen and bathrooms. We were pretty excited as we got to the floor store, but when we stepped inside, we were dazed. There were quite literally thousands of materials and colors and shades and patterns. We wandered randomly around the store. How can we choose? So we talked to the salesperson. He looked us up in his records. He led us to a small display and said, you can choose any of these three unless you want to upgrade for an additional fee. (laughs) Now the choice was easy. We were so relieved. (laughs) Our lives are full of choices, big choices and little choices, every day. How do we choose? How can we know God's best for us? Let's pray. God, speak to us this morning through your word. Speak through me to the people hearing me. Enable them to hear and understand what you want to say to them this morning. Amen. All right. So just a review. We're in Acts. Paul, after spending three years in the city of Ephesus, Paul had gone through Greece and Macedonia, encouraging the churches there. He was now on his way back to Jerusalem with Luke, 
the author of Acts, bringing a gift from the Macedonian believers to the church in Jerusalem. He was hoping to make it there before the day of Pentecost. He had just said goodbye to the leaders of the Ephesian church in the coastal town of Miletos. So, Acts 21, verse 1. When we had parted from them and had set sail, we ran a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we came inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. Now this really begs for a map. So, got a map. So, modern day, he's in modern day Turkey, but there he was outside of Ephesus, Miletus, Rhodes, Patara. They went past Cyprus and down to Tyre. Okay? So I've never heard of most of these places that they stopped, except Rhodes. The Colossus of Rhodes, if you heard of that, is a statue of Apollo over 100 feet tall. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was in ruins, though, by the time Paul was there. So back in these verses, when we had departed, who are the, who are the we? It's Paul and his entourage, including Luke. And it says we had departed from them. Who are them? The church elders who had come down from Ephesus, who Paul had just spoken to. So they stopped at Patara. It was the main port and the capital of the province. And this is the city where they switched ships from what I call the local with daily stops to what I call the express, direct to the city of Tyre. As you can see, it was a pretty straight shot, about 400 miles. It would take about five days with the usual winds. And by the way, Phoenicia is just another name for the coastal part of Syria. In these verses, Luke uses a bunch of, that I just read, uh, Luke uses a bunch of technical sailing terms, set sail, ran a straight course, went aboard, inside of Cyprus, landed, unloaded its cargo. Remember, Luke's regular job was as a ship's doctor, so he knew the lingo. Okay, so on to verse 4. After looking up the disciples there in Tyre, we stayed there for seven days. You know, my version says looking up the disciples, but another way to say this would be searching for and finding the Christians. They knew or thought there were believers in Tyre, but they didn't know any of them. The Christians that were there had probably settled there after the persecution that started with the killing of Stephen that Paul had helped instigate before he was a believer. Back in Acts 11, verse 19, So those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. So they had to leave Jerusalem and they came up north. Paul and his associates stayed in Tyre Tyre, (laughs) for a whole week because that's how long the ship stayed there, being unloaded and doing whatever else the crew had to do. Paul was just a passenger after all. Sometimes I get in my mind that, you know, Paul's the one running all this ship and stuff, but no, they're just passengers on a ship that was going for other reasons. So back at the rest of verse 4, after looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. 
these Christians kept telling Paul through the Spirit or by the power of the Spirit or prompted by the Holy Spirit, guided by the Holy Spirit, what were they telling him? Not to go to Jerusalem. But wasn't that Paul's plan? Were these Christians over-prophesying or was Paul being disobedient? Well, in Greek, this is not really a command. It's more like they were saying to Paul by the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. Paul already knew that hard times were coming. Back in Acts 20, verse 22, Paul is speaking. He says, And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and affliction await me. So he knew. Verse 5, When our days there were ended, we left and started on our journey, while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home again. So these people grew close together in a short time. Whole families came with them to the ship to say goodbye. Luke paints a good picture. You can just picture them on the beach. These families had shown great hospitality, the people they'd only heard of and certainly never met. But they had Christ in common. I know I've asked this before, but have any of you ever been on a short-term mission trip, staying with host families for a week or two? When I went on a mission trip to, with a mission team to Nova Campo Grande in Brazil in 1999, we stayed with families from the church in the barrio. We had next to nothing in common with these families. We, we didn't even speak the same language. But we had Christ in common. We saw God working in their lives as they served him and, and told their neighbors the good news. We were amazed at their prayer times. They prayed with power and conviction. We saw how they loved each other and how they loved us and showed us more hospitality than we'd ever seen in the United States. They saw that even though our plans had to change, God still used us in their lives and in the lives of the people in the neighborhood. Like Paul and Luke, we became close friends with those families in very short time. There were many tears as they saw us off at the airport when we left. Verse 7, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and after greeting the brethren, we stayed, them, stayed with them for a day. They only stayed in Ptolemais for a day. The ship had to move on. In verse 8, and on the next day we came to Caesarea, or Caesarea. And here's another map. We can see that part. Yeah, so there, it's just a, sh- a lot shorter little trips. Verse 8, and on the next day we left and came to Caesarea and entering the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. So it says they stayed with Philip. Remember Philip? Okay, he's not Philip the apostle, but it was the same Philip who had been chosen to be one of the seven men who did some of the early work of deacons. So the apostles could be freed up. This is back in Acts 6, verse 3. One of the apostles is saying, 
Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, who we may, who we, who we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and then some other guys too, <laughs> with harder names. <laughs> Philip is also the one that obeyed the Holy Spirit by going out into the desert and finding an Ethiopian man traveling to Jerusalem and telling him the good news and baptizing him. At the end of that story in Acts 8, verse 40, Philip found himself as Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. So it kind of follows Philip's path. Verse 9. Now this man, Philip, had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. In other words, unmarried daughters who had the gift of prophecy. It doesn't say anything more about them. Clearly, this was a family that was Christ-centered, though. The fact that Luke mentioned these women shows how important women have always been in the life of the church. Like when Peter quotes from the Old Testament book of Joel in Acts 2, 17. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So, what does it mean to prophesy? Prophesy. I'll say it right. We'll find out in a little bit. So verse 10. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, Agabus took Paul's belt and bound his own hands and feet and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So Agabus is somebody that we've actually seen before in Acts. In, in Acts 11, verse 28, one of, one of the prophets from Jerusalem named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. So what, what Agabus did, though, with the belt is very like an Old Testament prophet. God often had them use visual aids to... Here's a little example of that in Jeremiah 13. Thus the Lord said to me, to Jeremiah, Go and buy yourself a linen waistband and put it around your waist, but do not put it in water. So I bought the waistband in accordance with the word of the Lord and put it around my waist. Then the word of the Lord came to me a second time, saying, Take the waistband that you have bought, which is around your waist, and arise, go to the Euphrates, and hide it there in the crevice of the rock. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates, as the Lord had commanded me. After many days, the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates, and take from there the waistband which I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug, and I took the waistband from the place where I had hidden it. And lo, the waistband was ruined. It was totally worthless. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, so will I destroy the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This wicked people who refuse to listen to my words, who walk in the stubbornness of their hearts and have gone after other gods to serve them and to bow down to them, let them be just as this waistband, which is totally worthless. For as the waistband clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole household 
household of Israel and the whole household of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people for renown, for praise and for glory. But they did not listen. So just like God had Jeremiah illustrate what he was saying with this ruined belt, in the same way God had Agabus illustrate what he was saying with Paul's belt. So what was the Holy Spirit saying to Paul? Was he saying, you must not go? Or is it more like, get ready for what's about to happen? This sounds a lot like when Jesus was about to go to Jerusalem. His friends didn't quite get it either. Matthew 20, verse 18, Jesus says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles and mock and scourge him and crucify him. And on the third day he will be raised up. Back in Acts, verse 12. When we had heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him, begging Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Now who's begging? Everyone besides Paul, even Luke. Why are they begging? Are they purposely contradicting the Holy Spirit? Paul already had an idea what was in store for him in Jerusalem. Remember what he told the guys back at Miletus? And now behold, bound by the Spirit, by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies that to, to me that in every city, saying that bonds and affliction await me. Verse 13, Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. See, he did know what would happen there, but he chose to obey anyway. Still, it was hard for Paul to see his friends so upset. Verse 14, Since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, The will of the Lord be done. So they stopped pressing Paul because they saw that his mind was made up. And this was not so much of a remark, like my version says here. It's, it's a command. It's called a third-person imperative. We, a better way might be to say, let the will of the Lord be done. It reminds me of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke twenty-two forty-two. Jesus saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. So, What is the gift of prophecy? The primary form of prophecy is the act of proclaiming and applying God's word to people in particular situations. In other words, preaching God's word. It's what we're asking for when James and Will and I ask God to speak through us. We pray that God would speak through us to you. If you've ever felt like a sermon was speaking right to you, through the Holy Spirit in your heart, you've experienced the gift of prophecy. The second form of prophecy is called words of wisdom and words of knowledge. These are wisdom and knowledge that can only come directly from God about specific situations. Prophecy never convicts or supersedes God's word and is usually tied to actual scripture. Its purpose is to build up the church and to guide in mission. It has been defined as reporting in one's own words something God has spontaneously brought to mind. 
Scripture is infallible, but believers speaking prophetically are not infallible. I got a slide of a book, the next slide here. Remember this last year? Um, it's an excellent book that we studied last year. Jesus Continued by J.D. Greer. And by the way, he's the pastor of the Summit Church in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina, and he's president of the Southern Baptist Convention. So here's just a little excerpt from the book. Ground rules for receiving words of prophecy. When somebody, when you hear a, uh, what you think might be a prophecy or somebody tells you what they think is a prophecy. The first one is, it's okay to be a little skeptical. And number two, ask yourself, does this word contradict what God has said in the scriptures? If it does, it's not, not really prophecy. Not from God. Number three, ask yourself, does the word accord with what I know God is doing in my life? And the, the example that he gave in the book is one I've seen before, too, where somebody, uh, young people uh, talking to each other, the guy says, oh, God showed me that we should be mar- we're going to be married. The girl's like, uh, he never told me that. Uh. <laughs> All right. It happens more than... I'd like to think. And finally, number four, ask yourself, does this word glorify God or the one giving it? So anyway, this is, this is an excellent book. It, and even as I went through it again to do some of this, I was thinking how <laughs> I need to read the whole thing again. <laughs> There's a lot of good things in there. So how can we reconcile what the believers with the gift of prophecy have been saying to Paul with what the Holy Spirit has been saying to Paul? How did Paul reconcile them? How did he make them match up? Were those believers wrong? Were they being deceived? I don't think so. The core message of each of these prophecies is that Jewish leaders will mistreat you in Jerusalem. I think hearing that, most of us would naturally tell Paul, don't go. But there was more to the story. Paul's obedience to the Holy Spirit meant that he planned to go to Jerusalem in spite of the opposition. And as we'll see later in Acts, God's plans for Paul could only have come to pass if Paul was arrested. Some of Paul's most effective ministry was done from a jail cell. Verse 15. After these days, we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem from Caesarea Caesarea to Jerusalem is a 65-mile journey, about two days. I think with donkeys, I couldn't walk 30 miles in a day. Of course, I'm not those guys. Verse 16, some of the disciples from Caesarea also came up with us, taking us to Manasseh of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. So Paul and the gang made it to Jerusalem. They had a place to stay during the busy Pentecost week. A disciple of long standing probably means Manasseh was one of the original Christians, maybe from the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. So our lives are certainly full of choices, big choices and little choices, every day. How do we choose? How can we know God's best for us? Paul listened to the leading of the Holy Spirit and chose to go to Jerusalem, in spite of knowing the trouble that awaited him there. He didn't have a martyr complex. He chose to follow God's leading in his life, whatever the cost. 
Luke 11.9, Jesus says, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. In James 1.5, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So for us, it's often not what God, it's often not what would God have us do or what would Jesus do. It's usually more often, I think, about our willingness to do it. Where is God leading you? If you don't know, how can you find out? To begin with, you have to want to find out. We talk about seeking his will for our lives, but what if he wants you to go to a scary place or even an uncomfortable place? Are you willing to give up your comfortable life and follow where he leads? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your spirit. We thank, we thank you for his guidance, um, and just your love for us that, that will lead us um, in your ways. And we please show us where you want us to go, what you want us to do, who you want us to talk to, and what you want us to say. Um, I thank you that you care about the choices in our lives and you give us help. Um, to, and we pray that you're honored by the choices that we make. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, check out our website at www.silverlakebaptist.org.